Rising from COVID-19, Another Story of Resilience. Uh, this is a series of uh, three shows we're going to be doing, and uh, our, my co-host here is Dr. Stately of Native American Community Development, uh, excuse me, Native American Community Clinic here in Minneapolis in the, to the Twin Cities. And uh, we have a, a long story to tell here, and what we want to really do is set up the other shows tonight, uh, today and tonight uh, for the next two shows, but I think it's really important for us to know who, who we are and what we're trying to accomplish here. And I want to really bring in Dr. Stately right now and talk about a few things. And one of the things I'd really love for you to bring up to the audience is who you are and, and not only who you are, but what you, about your community and about... Uh, where you work, and you have a, a compelling story to uh, tell our listening audience. Oh, well, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, thank you, um, first, uh, uh, Miigwech, for inviting me to be a co-host and to be here with you this evening. Um, and boujou to everybody out there in um, Indian country listening tonight. Um, my name is uh, Anthony Staley. I'm the executive officer and president of the Native American Community Clinic in um, South Minneapolis, and <clears throat> that's um, my professional title. Um, I think probably my most important role in life, really, is um, being the dad of twin boys who are, um, well, one is a two-time state champion in hockey, <laughs> and um, the other one only got to go once, and that's a whole thing. So <laughs> we could take all three series to talk about that. Right. <laughs> and, exactly. and, that and that happened during COVID. So that was a compelling and interesting experience. Um, but I'm an enrolled citizen of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin. And I'm a descendant of the Great Red Lake and White Earth Nations of Minnesota. And my mother was from White Earth and my father was from Red Lake. And I was born and raised in South Minneapolis. And... Um, I lived in this area for my entire life, um, except for the years that I was in boarding school. And I went to boarding school from the ages of six, maybe five and a half, because I started, I think, when I was going into first grade and um, was there until about 11 years old. And, you know, like a lot of Native families, my parents kind of moved around a lot. So we spent a lot of time in the Twin Cities, most of my 
memories are of time so living in um, the Twin Cities. We also moved back and forth between Milwaukee and Minnesota um, often, and we also moved between um, White Earth and Minnesota, and I mean Minneapolis, and also um, uh, Net Lake or Boys Fort um, when I was a small child with my sister's younger um, my younger sister's uh, father. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of been all over the map, I think, in the Midwest. And um, uh, I moved away for about 20 years and then came back when my children were born. My, mm. my sons are Dakota. And um, and I adopted them at birth the day they um, came out is the day that I got them. And, um, you know, Nothing really changes and completely reorientates your perspective on life until you become a parent, I mm. think. It really does change everything about the way that you see the world. And um, when there were little tiny guys and they would sleep um, next to me, well, actually, <clears throat> they're twins, so they wanted me to always sleep between between them so i'd always get sandwiched you know until when they fell asleep then i have to wiggle my way out but when they were little tiny guys i would whisper in their ears and i would say um i would whisper and i would say thank you for saving my life because that's what it felt like it felt like um when they were born i was given a much deeper sense of understanding about my role and my responsibility on the planet and um and they helped to really um, clarify, like what I was about, what I was going to do with my life, hmm. right? Um, and um, when they were two years old, they moved back to Minnesota um, to raise them around their um, their relatives um, and to be on their homeland, and so that they would learn their be around their language. They would hear Dakota language. They would hear. Um, and see Dakota songs and music and culture, and I wanted them to know who they were, and I wanted them to know that this is the place they're from. So that was a really important part of my life. And it also created for me um, an opportunity to step into the work that I do today, and um, that was also completely... um, completely unexpected, and in a lot of ways, um, life-changing as well. So the, the last several years have been life-changing because of the work I do. Yeah, and let's get a little uh, deeper in the work you're doing right now um, because that's uh, it's amazing. And I think all around um, when we talk to uh, state agencies uh, here in uh, my show, Native Roots Radio, we hear about Native... American uh, Community Clinic and uh, and the great work you're doing and I already know that but it's really kind of a blessing to hear other outside organizations talk so highly of what you do and uh, let's talk a little bit about what your clinic does. Sure. <clears throat> well, thank you for um, mentioning that and acknowledging the work we do. That's really good. I appreciate it. <clears throat> so I, I have the honor and privilege, it's a tremendous honor actually to um, be in the role that I'm in, the executive officer and president of Native American Community Clinic. Um, I, you know, I think it's a unique experience to go off and kind of you know, mature and become a 
um, you know, a man and then come back to your community that raised you and gave you your, um, grounded you and gave you, you, you know, a, a strong foundation to build your life on. <clears throat> and so it's been a really great honor to come back and work for them. And um, I am a, so just a little bit of background. Um, I'm, I'm, I am a doctor. I'm a clinical psychologist. <laughs> My sons always like to say like, oh, he's not that kind of doctor because he can't actually help you. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, they they got that great Indian humor, those two, yeah. Um, and they're really great at, like, you know, keeping you humble. Um, and so my background has always, has been in clinical psychologists, and my training was in multicultural cl- clinical um, community psychology, and I focused a lot of my early training and my work in understanding the impact of historical trauma and intergenerational um, transmission of trauma in um, in our families and in our community, and I focused all my like my research and my my clinical work in that area for for a, a good decade before I or so before I came back to Minnesota, um, and that that training was fu- fun- fundamental and foundational for me in understanding the things that we're seeing happening in our communities and helping me to understand how to um, address that and manage that as a clinician, mm-hmm. like in therapy, which mm-hmm. is where I was doing a lot of my work for most of the early part of my career. But then, you know, I fairly rapidly, and I think this happens in a lot of um for a lot of people who get their advanced degrees in um um, in our community, whether that's in education or psychology or medicine or um, law, any of these kinds of things where we have significant great need in our communities. We just have tremendous need, right? Um, that if you're if you happen to be fairly good at the thing that you're doing, um, you know, your community sort of like, you know, lifts you up and kind of pulls you into leadership and sort of says, you know, sometimes indirectly, but sometimes directly, mm. um, like, you know, you're, it's time for you to step forward and do something and, and help us here. And that happened to me early on in my career in Los Angeles. Um, I, When I was in grad school, I worked um, um, as a volunteer for a... Um, this small little tiny um, IHS-funded um, clinic in downtown Los Angeles on Skid Row. Mm. I used to have to walk over people, you know, sleeping in the on the steps or in the alley because it was right next to the alley. It was really, you know, I forget. They used to call it Indian Alley, actually. Wow. Um, and one of the profound things that I learned in that experience of being a volunteer, um, running groups for people, um, and just doing whatever they really needed me to do um, in my training was um, I would hear stories from the people, the men and the women who would come into my group about um, how long they had been homeless. Hmm. And um, they would tell me stories of like um, that 
I would ask them things like, you know, like kind of what we do in Indian country. We're like, hey, you know, tell me who you are and where you're from, right? And they'd always, and nine times out of ten, the people I was talking to in that situation, they were from someplace other than Los Angeles. Mm. You know, they were from someplace far away, you know, Chicago, Wisconsin, you know, Kansas, you know, um, the the upper Midwest. I mean, or the uh, or the Northwestern coast. They were always from someplace other than the place we were at, um, and and they would have stories of like things like that. You know, their parents or their grandparents had been houseless as well mm-hmm. there, homeless as well there. Like they had stories of growing up in cars, sleeping on the sleeping on the streets, and. That was a really difficult thing to listen to, but I also didn't put a lot of things together at that point in time in my sort of like my early career. I didn't understand like the direct connection of that experience and the things I was hearing to like policy, federal Indian policy, right? Like here I'm speaking to people in Los Angeles, which was a relocation city during the federal Indian policy of um, relocation act. Um, and I'm talking to people who have been generationally impacted by that, by the failure of that policy, right? Mm-hmm. And here it am. It, 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 what I realize now, looking backwards, is it's laying this foundation for me to understand some of the things I'm struggling with now hmm. in the leadership role that I have. But back then, I was a volunteer and I was in grad school. And like a year and a half, I think... Or, yeah, about a year and a half, almost two years out of grad school. I graduated in 1997. And in 1999, this organization asked me to step in and help them to develop a um, mental health services clinic for hmm. for children and for families. Wow. I had no idea how I was going to do that. Like, I had worked in other clinics in my training. <laughs> and, you know, and it's kind of, this is like, but I think this is the other part of, like, some of this conversation we're going to have later, which is, like, you know, so many of us in leadership roles, we, you know, nobody, nobody in my graduate training taught me how to be a CEO. Nobody taught me how to be like a president. There isn't like a school that you can go to to learn those skills, right? Right. Um, and so what I realize now is that like my community sort of like said, you have something that's going to help us. You have an education. You understand this thing that we don't. And yeah, maybe you're not an expert in it, but we need your help. And so they're like, will you do this? And like, you have people asking you like, will you do this? And you're like, you know, (laughs) like, you know, if you have any sense of commitment to not just the work you're doing, but the commitment to the, to help the people, you just step forward. And I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. I literally actually didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I had worked in child mental health clinics but so I understood like how the billing process I kind of did it enough to understand generally like Mm. how things operated and how the the finance part of it worked and I just was like jumped in because I knew that the scale of the need I had been in working for them when they were a smaller operation and right in Skid Row in downtown LA and I and I think there is something about that experience early on that was coded in my sort of genetic memory and my own experience of watching the things that were going around on around me phenomenologically when I was a kid. 
Mm. So I was raised in South Minneapolis in the late 60s, early 70s, during the time of the civil rights movement and the American Indian movement. Mm -hmm. Um, I have deep memories of my, you know, um, my mother organizing these meetings and other Native women organizing meetings in our community in response to police violence. Right. Directed at the the, the men and and other members of our community, right? And I, I was just a young boy at the time. I didn't understand what was going on, but I have memories of like you know them filing through my house, going on down into the basement. We lived in the southeast projects, kind of over by the university at the time. And um, and my mom would like you know stand at the top of the stairs, and they'd all go downstairs. I remember my my uncles Dennis Banks, mm. the, the Belcourt brothers, and a bunch of other folks, not just them, but. And then all the women that were involved, and I would, they would go down into the basement, and my mom would stop me at the front, at, at the top of the steps, and she'd close the door. She goes, "Don't come down here. We're going to have adult conversation." And you know, I, but I was also that kid that would do things like crazy things, like lay on the floor and try to look underneath the crack of the floor <laughs> and listen in, and like so. I was just, you know, I was that pain in the ass kid. Oh, sorry. <laughs> to bleep that probably <laughs> pain in the butt kid who just sort of like did everything that their parents didn't tell them to do because I had a I had a curiosity and a thirst for life and trying to understand what was going on around me so uh, there you can see the foundation being built for trying to understand what's going on in my community trying to understand the world around me and what what was going on and um, and the curiosity of of um wanting to understand problems and wanting to understand solutions. And um, I had great role models for leadership. I didn't realize this at the time, but I, but you know, every single one of those people walking into my home and filing past me and I would see out in the community, they were, they were demonstrating for me like how to, how to be a leader. Um, and I didn't know it at the time. Um, and, um, and what they taught me was that when there is a crisis in our community and we have a gift, like actually one of the things I learned in this process is that every single one of us has the capacity for leadership. There, every single person in our community has the capacity for leadership. Um, we are a strong, resilient people who have like, you know, endured so many things, mm-hmm. so many injustices and so many things over our the decades and generations of our lives. So we have that built into us, the capacity to do that. Um, but I happened to find, you know, not really early in my life. I was in, 30, in my 30s, 35 or so, when I graduated from graduate school. Um, but I found this thing that I, I found a skill and mm-hmm. I found something that I was good at and other people recognized that in me and 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 encouraged and also sometimes told me Hmm. like you know you have this thing you we need you right and so it laid this foundation for me and connected me to that sort of ancestral and that sort of like the way I grew up and the way I saw other people showing up and stepping in when there was a crisis Mm -hmm. and so that's just kind of I think how I've operated and I think it's a embedded even in like the way I sort of work the cadence at which i work and and it comes 
through in the way I lead, and even in the organization I'm in today. Mm-hmm. Like I, Knack really, I have an amazing workforce, an amazing team. They're just amazingly beautiful people who lead with heart, mm. you know. And um, it's not to say that they don't get things wrong sometimes, mm-hmm. you know. Sometimes they get things wrong. Um, we all do. None of us are perfect. But they have the most beautiful hearts and they work hard and they give 110% of themselves to the things that we are struggling with. And it has been a rough Mm. three or four years, a rough three or four years. And it's been a tremendous privilege for me to, to bring this skill set that I have to this work. And, um, I've learned a lot from that experience as well. That's uh, that's beautiful, and I've learned a few things that I didn't know about you. And what I want to do right now, too, is just kind of jump into uh, the history of COVID. And when I think about that, I really have to think because I got a good memory, but it's short. And what happens is we forget about things that uh, that we've heard from people taking their clothes off at the door and not knowing if the clothes yeah. spreads COVID. But I remember for me in the very, very beginning, there were people who were stuck on ships that couldn't get off. And it was like uh, they were closing the borders but leaving European planes to come in. And uh, it, it just baffles my mind to think back that short time. What is your recollection? What, what what is your recollection? Uh, my recollection. That too. Yeah. Of... Uh, <laughs> I was going to say recollation, but that's another show. It is. Um, but what are your thoughts and memories of, uh, that's a definition, uh, of um, when this, the history of COVID and how it started with us? Oh, God, you know, I was thinking about this because I knew we were going to be here having this conversation. And, and I was trying to remember, like, what it was like before COVID. I think a lot of people are going to have that thing, like, you know, my sons, my sons say this too. They're like, you know, like they divide the world and like, you know, as kids do, I think that's kind of a way that you sort of kind of figure out big chunks of time in your life and what were the big things that sort of defined your life. Um, and for them, it's like there was this world before COVID and now there's this world after COVID. So they call it AC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> you know, BC and AC. Mm-hmm. And... um mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I I sometimes forget what it was like right before, um, and 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 I re- I remember, I think it was like, I don't know, it was like I think it was like Novemberish, hmm. Decemberish of twenty nineteen. We were NAC was in the process of, so in my professional life we were in this process of. Um, working to try to purchase the building that we had been operating for the last 18 years or so. <clears throat> and we had these big, glorious ideas of what we were going to do with that and a few other things. Um, we had just come out of the Wall of Forgotten Natives. Oh, wow. Remember? And wow. so we had had that experience where we were, my clinic had like responded to like the largest encampment that Minnesota had ever seen in its entire history. Right of houseless natives, you know. Well, since like the, maybe the Dakota War, right? Yeah, across from uh, 
Fort Snelling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think like what was we had just come out of that crisis, and the year prior to that we had a, like a little bit of an internal crisis. My first year at NAC, we were going through some challenges, as all organizations do when there's a significant change in leadership. I think, but we had gotten through that. Faced with that challenge of the wall for Ghana natives, we stepped forward. We um, that was the year 2018, 2019 was the year we started building out our cultural healing services just in time for us to have this condition where I we we delivered spiritual care and traditional healing services to encampment people. We delivered a bunch of other things to them, and I felt like this moment where you know we had gotten through that really tough fall of 2018 went into 2019 got people through that big crisis got people housed a significant number of them housed mm -hmm. actually the ones that didn't get housed were in a navigation center which is basically a big huge shelter structure where we delivered services on site on franklin avenue right on the cultural corridor and then we got through that and we kind of had this moment kind of, I have this really profound memory of like where I thought like, you know, for a good nine months solid, I just sort of, sort of felt like a, in my role of like, I was just holding my breath. Mm. And then the the summer of 2019, I felt like I was able to sort of like, you know, just like, <sighs> mm. right. So then that was that. And then the fall came and then we started hearing about this, you know, this virus in China that, was, you know, you know, and I remember thinking I had this moment where I was thinking, well, you know, other things have started there too, and they contained them, like, you know, and then I, I remember. I think of like mad cow disease. Remember that yeah, was a big thing, and then never well, shriveled shriveled yeah, out to anything. Yeah, so and, I wasn't too concerned either. Yeah. Do you remember when people were really anxious and afraid? Like, oh, if I eat beef, I'm gonna like go yeah. crazy and start banging my head against the wall. Yeah. I went like a whole four months, I think, maybe, where I didn't eat hamburger because <laughs> I just didn't trust. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good time I do, to go I back do, to Buffalo. I do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly bison in my way uh my culture but um yeah uh that was a thing yeah. definitely and uh the media helped drive it and i th thought that the was happening again yeah so i think that that like the, yeah you're that's a great sort of like segue into this whole idea of like well you know people there was this we had these other experiences like remember we also thought like avian flu was gonna kill everybody and like you know there's so there's just like this there's this cadence to media and i realize now we're on media so like you know i want to kind of acknowledge that as well there's this cadence to media sometimes to sort of like just try its best to scare the hell out of american mm -hmm. people or just people in general, right? Right. You know, we, you know, it's part of how we, it's part of our, it's embedded in our culture as a, as um, specifically, I think, in Western culture to sort of like try to, you know, motivate people to do things like, you know, I don't know, um, buy this shirt, not that shirt, you yeah. know, buy this car, not that car, brush your teeth, um, floss them. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not speaking to you directly, oh, you but, sure? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, but that that thing also creates this narrative and this this thing in our head where we're like like less likely to to 
you know, it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf syndrome. It's like, you know, we're less likely to take the next sort of big, huge thing that you're talking about seriously. And I think that's kind of a little bit where a lot of people were at the beginning of the pandemic. And I remember having this thought in my head, like, oh, they're going to contain it. And it's going to stay over there. And, and then I remember having some early conversations with some colleagues and a few other people. And, you know, we had other people be like, you know, it's going to take over the world. Mm-hmm. We're going to turn into zombies. That's it. We're like, you know, it just, and there's nothing like that level of a crisis to sort of kind of create really, um, you know, it, it, when we start to see people die at the scale at which they were dying and they were dying fairly rapidly. Yeah. Right. I, I had this moment in the early part of that pandemic where I remembered where I likened that the way that I was feeling and the way that the world felt around me Mm -hmm. as similar to the way that I felt being a young gay man living in, I landed in Los Angeles in 1986, mm-hmm. March of 86 at the height of the AIDS epidemic. Exactly. And I remember just like, I'd meet people. I'd know them for a few weeks, a couple months, maybe a year. And then they'd be gone from my life. Mm. And it was just like, and it was such the, the scale of loss was similar to that. And I, and it, sort of like pulled on that experience for me. I had this moment where I was like, wow. And kind of walked through the world of like wondering like who was going to leave next, Mm. what was going to happen next. And I had, because I was a father now too, Mm -hmm. I had like just tremendously deep fear of the impact that I was going to have on my kids and my family, my extended family. Um, Because I had built this world and this life around them and around my work, but also mostly around my family and my community. And, you know, I came back home because I needed help raising my kids. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, what is gonna happen to me and to my ability to function if somebody really close to me leaves? Right. And, there right. was the, and I had that moment where I was really afraid. And now at that point in time, I hadn't even thought about myself, really. Mm, right. And then we fast forward uh, to, um, to once COVID was spread around Turtle Island yeah. with no vaccine. As it's hard no for me vaccines. to even, even remember that. It's, it was such a huge thing, and we were doing— We didn't have a way to test for it until well into 2020. Wow. Like, I think— March or April of 2020, we had a way of testing for it. So we had people um, getting sick. We had people getting hospitalized, uh, and there was uh, it was reminiscent to me a lot of uh, the Vietnam War. With uh, I don't know if you remember this, Doctor Stately, but we used to have a count. You know how many oh, Vietnamese yeah. were killed yeah. and how many Americans were killed and almost like a, a score a scoreboard uh, every night on the news that we were winning the war by uh, killing maybe three more or 300 more Vietnamese and Americans were being killed. But the count reminded me eerily of that that period in, yeah. uh, in the time. And uh, 
So we fast forward here in, in the next uh, four minutes of this segment here. Um, you were hospitalized. I was, yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. Oh, God. Um, yeah, I didn't expect that. So that was really, I hadn't planned, which is like so like, You know, I hadn't, I, I had not had a plan in my head mm. for like what would happen if I got sick. I think some of that was like, you know, like everybody, I did the thing, like, you know, came home from the clinic, I'd take my clothes off, like I'd wear the little booties and yeah. I'd like drop all my clothes at the door and I'd scarf them up and throw them in plastic bags and then get them down to the washer right away and do that kind of stuff. I, I did, you know, I remember like, I was sitting on the couch early and somebody was like, you know, you better go get some, you know, get all the, you know, all of the Lysol wipes you possibly can because yeah. they're going to be gone soon, yeah. right? And you remember oh. days of toilet no toilet, toilet paper? paper? Oh, my God. And paper towels. And the price ah. has never gone down since. No. No, it hasn't. Yeah. And many of those trees that made those paper towels, they died way before. <laughs> COVID, there's no reason for them to be that expensive. Exactly. <laughs> but I think one of the things I just, like, remembered is, like, you know, I, I ran out to get, like, wipes at Target, and I and there was, like, no, nothing on the shelves, just, like, empty shelves. I was, like, I felt like I had this memory in my head where I, where I thought, this thought that I remember having was, like, this must be what it felt like for people like during like the Holocaust or mm. right like leading like during World War Two when they'd walk into places and there's like no bread and there's right. no, no, nothing of the staples in their lives that they rely on. Right. And I and I had a moment of panic honestly, and then I was like, okay, well if I can't get those wipes, I probably should go buy some bleach. So I ran over to the Dollar Tree and God, I found like you know. Um, you know, I found like some, you know, a good supply of dollar uh, of um, bleach, bleach at the Dollar Tree. <laughs> I got it for ninety six cents. Um, under a dollar. Under a dollar, and you know what? I had like I bought like twenty of them. Now at the end of the pandemic, when or what? You know, when I like you know a year later, I still had about seventeen bottles in my in my garage, <laughs> which I actually gave away later when I moved. <laughs> But the point being, like, ninety-six cents for a gallon of um, bleach. Now it's like four bucks for yeah. a gallon of bleach. That's right. Prices have never gone down. So, but I think I had this moment. I think where I thought I was impervious because I worked in healthcare and somehow, like, being in that in that setting and having access to the knowledge and all the information was somehow going to keep me safe. And that wasn't my experience at all. You know, I think this might be a, a good time to pause, uh, especially emotionally and spiritually, with uh, go to the next segment. Why don't we all take a quick break here and we'll just uh, take deep breaths here and move on because uh, what we're going to talk about is pretty heavy. And uh, we're going to bring our guest in soon, too. And uh, I just want to say uh, Native Roots Radio is presenting uh, Rising from COVID 19, another story of resilience. And I'm here with. Uh, co-host uh, Dr. Stately and uh, producer Haley Cherry and uh, we'll be right back uh, please stay with us and take a little short break here
from COVID-19, another story of resilience. Yes, and this special broadcast is supported by the Minnesota Department of Health. Yes, it is. Hey, we're here with our co-host, Dr. Stately, and we're kind of talking about the history of, well, the history of Dr. Stately, but also the history of COVID, and uh, (laughs) you like that, didn't you? You're historic. And... um, well, we're just getting in, in into the into the weeds here a little bit, uh, and kind of feeling a little emotional too about your journey. And I don't really know the exact steps, but right now we kind of left off where you saw this coming, and it was almost a dark cloud, and uh, there was a lot of feelings going on. And one of them was that what would happen if. Uh, COVID affected you uh, personally and your family, and the other was that it ended up uh, affecting you and your family. So why don't we start from there? Yeah, I mean, like I think I mentioned, I I didn't really – I hadn't, like, really given it a lot of thought, as much intentional thought as I should have, Um, like the what-ifs. I hadn't – I think there was a part of me that thought I would be impervious to it because I was like working in a healthcare setting. I had all this information in my head, you know, I was doing the thing, bleaching every surface that I could get my hands <laughs> on and think about, you know, um, uh, taking my clothes off, washing them. Um, there was a point where I stopped going into the office because I wanted to like sort of kind of mitigate the potential of bringing COVID home. So I did all the things right. Mm-hmm. And, you remember that the school started to close down. People were doing learning from home. Um, my kids are like played like four weeks of hockey in their first season, and they had to stop. Wow! Yeah. And um, I remember being like shuttered in place, right, and sheltered in place, and not going anywhere and staying home. And like you know, we lived in a much smaller house than we live in now, and we're just on top of each other and my kids were like, please, can we go, you know, friend, hang out with some friends and, you know, play, play football. Right. And it was like October around this time, four years ago. And, um, I was like, well, um, okay, but wear masks, you know, and that kind of thing. And, you know, they were, 12 years old so mm. they didn't really 12 13 years old they didn't not not a lot of impulse control at that age <laughs> <laughs> some of us don't even yeah. have it much later in life but um uh they went and hung out with their friends and played football and they tackling each other and doing the whole thing and remember that weekend and then like about four days later my son Chaske is not feeling well and Mm. he's like dad I don't feel well I'm sick and Mm. so you know I was like well it's me you know we're doing everything right we're like we're okay and um and then I he didn't get better and and so then and then the other kid gets sick and then pretty like 
well, actually, before he got sick, um, I took him to the hospital. I took him to the, the the clinic, not my clinic, but the um, I, I live really close to the Shakopee Midwalker and Sioux community. And I used their um, primary care clinic for my my family's care, and they had the ability, They tested him, and he mm-hmm. came back positive. And I just remember, like, uh, when we got the test result, and I told him he had COVID, and he, I just remember him, like, just. And they were like, go home. He has to isolate or he has to um, quarantine. And the rest of you have to stay in your home. And, um, you know, if you go out to get meals or those things, wear masks, mm-hmm. you know, um, all, all, the, all the things that we had to do. Right? And at this point, there was no vaccine and no. no way to tell. Well, it sounds like there was a way to tell you had COVID now. Yeah. We, so we got the ability to start testing for COVID like I think the end of the first quarter of 2020, and this is like around November or October of 2020, right? Um, and so we go home, and you know, I have to put him in his room, and 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 he, <laughs> I was just talking about this the other day. He was like, "Oh yeah," he goes, "I was having a great time. I got to, you know, I didn't have to go to school, and I didn't have to show up, and I could, I just, I watched, you know, I watched." Uh, um, Greece every single day, you know, for, every day, <laughs> every day, over and over, and um, and he remember. So he didn't get super sick, mm. but he he got sick enough, but he didn't get super sick. And I remember just thinking to myself, "Oh, um, we're gonna be okay." Like I'd have to make. I made dinner for us, and then I'd I'd bring his plate his dinner to him on a tray and I'd put it in front of his door and I'd knock on the door oh. and then he'd come out and get it and go back in and you know and he'd, wow. he'd have to do the same thing knock on the door leave the tray wow. and that was like how we sort of did that cadence for like I would think probably I don't know um, four days or so and then he was getting better, I mm-hmm. think, and not really didn't seem to have a lot of positive symptoms. Mm. And and there was a moment, like like at the third, fourth day, when he was like kind of like he was clearly uncomfortable. He had a high fever, but he wasn't like having a lot of and um I I. I didn't do the thing that they all said to do, which is like, you know, um, stay out of the room. Hmm. You know, he was, he was uncomfortable Mm. and it was hard to watch as a parent. And I went in and I, I, I laid down with him. Mm. Yeah. And I held him one of those nights. I think because I was scared. So that's probably, you know, like the way in which it sort of kind of spread throughout our home. We lived in a really small home at the time, like like a little tiny townhouse, mm-hmm. not an open concept. So there wasn't like, like – <laughs> really was like very little places to sort of like go and quarantine and like and, – yeah. and, you know, it's interesting because I think back now it's like how many people must have had that sort of kind of experience right. – like, and there was this feeling, I think, that my son had of, like, guilt. He, I remember him saying to me over and over, I'm so sorry, Daddy. Mm. And um, and my own sense of guilt about, like, not 
doing a better job of protecting him and you know and, and then so it, it spread fairly rapidly through our house wow. you know like yeah like it just like he got sick i got sick because um i laid with him and my other son got sick fairly quickly and and then and then, and then their other father got sick so all four of us are sick, wow. all within like a week or two of each other, like wow. within like clockwork. Wow. And so then there was like, for for a good period of time, I felt fine, and you know, I mean, I I remember I remember a defining moment when I lost my sense of taste, mm. and I was like, oh, you know, I was sick already, and then I lost my sense of taste and smell, and I was like, oh, and. And then I stopped eating because everything, it didn't matter what it was, everything tasted just like I was chewing dried cardboard or mm. wet cardboard, depending on the, the consistency of it, what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and oh. so, um, you know, and within two weeks of getting sick, I I was having, you know, challenges with my respiratory mm. and, you know, and I went out and got the thing, you know, remember you had to like, Take your um, oh yeah, your uh, oxygen level, That's the ox oxometer. Right. And do you remember? Like it was so hard to get those. Like you know, I remember just thinking like, I went to I I drove to like five pharmacies to find one. I do remember that. And That's crazy. It was yeah, and and <clears throat> on the night I went to the hospital, I was. You know, they were sick. I was sick. Um, Conan, their other father, was sick. And we were um, doing our best to sort of take care of one another. And, you know, and I woke up in the morning of the day I had to go to the hospital. It was the week of Thanksgiving. I had been working on purchasing a house. I was supposed to close on mm-hmm. our house that, that, that week. And... I went to get the oximeter and I put the oximeter on and it was like 89 and I was like, oh, right. So and what's, they, the, what's the numbers? Because they say like they would, I were, I had asked my medical officer at NAC, like, mm-hmm. you know, I would call her or text her and she'd say, okay, if you fall below 90, you have to go to the hospital. Whoa. And I had had a few days where it was like really like it hovered like around 92, 93-ish when I was sick and it would dip down, but then it would come back up. And she said, oh, you know, it's always going to be a little bit lower in the morning when you first wake up. You'll probably be just fine. You'll probably bounce back. So like, but just keep taking it. Mm-hmm. So I went through the entire day and I took it, you know, every hour and it wasn't going back up. Ooh. And then around five or six o'clock in the evening, I'm making dinner and I check it again and it's now 87 mm-hmm. instead of 89 or whatever. And I was like, oh. I'm talking to my, texting my sister by cell and she's like, go to the hospital. Right. And I said, I will, I will go to the hospital. I'm gonna make dinner first for the boys. <laughs> Good Indian there, <laughs> right? So like trying to do the thing, making the dinner, making you know, making, doing the dishes, cleaning up, kind of just making sure that they're taken care of, and you know, and I 
checked again, think you know this this hope like oh okay I'm gonna it'll go back up because mm. I didn't really feel I didn't, like in the morning I didn't feel really all that well. It was just this thing, this number on this thing that was telling me. And, but yeah. by the end of the day, I noticed things like walking the six steps up to the bathroom. Jeez. I was getting a little bit more labored in my breathing. And, you know, I had all the evidence. And and even then, I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave. I, yeah, I didn't want to leave my kids. Yeah. Yeah. It terrified me to leave my children. Yeah. And so I waited to the last minute. (laughs) My my sister was like, if you don't go to the hospital right now, I'm going to, I'm going to call an ambulance and send it over there. Mm. And I was like, Oh my God, do not call an ambulance. (laughs) I will like die of embarrassment if not COVID. Um, I don't know what that was all about. That's just like ridiculous. But, um, so it was like, I'm going to drive myself. She was like, you cannot drive yourself to the hospital. (laughs) Is this like, uh, the doctor is the worst patient kind of uh, thing that's happening right now? It it is completely because it's like, you know, like, and it is a real thing. Like, I mean, in healthcare, we're sometimes it's like, we great, we give great advice and direction to a lot of other people. And (laughs) like, we don't always do a great job of following that. And and I also recognized that my ambivalence about that was like I did not want to be separated from my children. Yeah, yeah, deep down, I for didn't, sure. Yeah, I didn't want to be separated from my kids, and you know, that helped me understand sort of phenomenologically the things that I was seeing around yeah. and in my community, and like why people weren't seeking help earlier, right? Right. Like if they had kids. I understood that. I Like, I right. lived that. I understood it. So I go and I walk in and, you know, I'm thinking, oh, they're just going to check me out and, like, you know, give me a little give bit of... Give me a pill. Yeah, give me a pill or, you know, shot of oxygen. Go yeah. home now. <laughs> Finish those dishes. <laughs> yeah. What's for dessert? <laughs> exactly. And they admit me and I'm like, oh, my God. I have this moment and I think, okay, well, they admit me and I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, and even then I didn't even have this sense like, oh, this is really serious. <laughs> like I had, you know, it took, you know, a lot of, yeah, I don't know. I'm thick headed, I guess, in a lot of ways. Um, it was serious once the, the, your, your butt was hanging out of that, uh, oh, that, that yeah, that gown, the gown, yeah. that's when it got serious, right? Yeah. I was like, and I was, you know, yeah. I didn't notice, I didn't realize this, but like when I got to the hospital, I made me wear the, put the gown on and oh. I like got dressed and then I was able to get out of the, and I went to the bathroom. There's a moment where I was able to see myself in that mirror. And I was like, I had lost a lot of weight because I had oh. stopped. Remember I told, I said I stopped eating for like Cause it tasted four or five days before it was just like, so I was trying to drink smoothies and then I, even that, I lost interest in that. And so there was about four or five days where I was just not eating. And, and if I was eating, I wasn't eating a whole lot. And that can't help your immune system if no, you're not uh, no. energizing your body with food. So then they, they put me, they come in and they put me on oxygen. Mm, and scary. Yeah. That's scary right there. Yeah. And they're like, um, okay. And the guy comes in, the doctor talks to me and he's basically saying, you know, we're going to, we're going to do this. And, um, you know, why don't you sleep on your stomach because it's better for your lungs oh to be on your stomach. God. Right? And that was challenging. Yeah. 
because like you know and then they would be like you know and even better if you like sort of like you know raise your feet and like you know so then it was kind of like so the fluid in your lungs could sort of like huh. alleviate the pressure for for you to breathe and i was like <clears throat> so i did that and and then they're like, okay, we're going to try this and we're going to see about how things go in the morning. And if you're not better or if you get worse, we'll probably put you on a ventilator. And I remember that experience and just thinking like, I had that moment where I was like, okay, I'm clearly not getting out of here. And number two, nobody can come in. And number three, mm. this is pretty serious. Like I'm, like I hadn't, it hadn't hit me like how serious it was until that moment when they're talking about putting me on a ventilator if it didn't get better. And I can't, I, I just remember that, that uh, people were visiting people through windows. Uh, that's, I forgot all about that. Yeah. That people couldn't come in and visit They couldn't come in. I didn't have an iPad. I didn't have any way for, for people to visit me. And I did, on my second day there, I had that moment where I was like, oh my God. I, I yeah, it's hard. I didn't. I was like, I remember clearly thinking like, okay, there's a good chance that I won't see my children again. Mm. Yeah. And you go through all the things in your head, like, okay, I didn't, I didn't make a will. I didn't prepare. I didn't tell people like what to do. And yeah. And so I'm panicking inside and I'm, yeah, that was tough. That was really tough time. Yeah. And I called my sister the next afternoon and I said, I left in such a hurry <laughs> because you're badgering me to go to the hospital. I left in such a hurry. It, only took, it took me six whole hours to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and I had to do the dishes. I had to do the dishes. I had all these make things. Make the beds. I and... <laughs> and I said, but one of the things I forgot to do was bring medicine. I didn't bring any medicine with oh. me. I said, like, um, can you just bring me, can you bring me, like I said, in these hospital, um, you know, the wind in my hospital gown is cold. And <laughs> and I had um, this moment where it was also like, so I asked for a blanket and I asked for medicine. So can you just like bring or drop off? They won't let you come in, but you can drop it off downstairs. The nurse said that you can drop off something and they'll go get it for me. Mm -hmm. And they just bring leave me a shell and some of the medicines so i can pray mm. and then um she did that and they brought it up and i remember that night of my second day i hadn't gotten better mm. i hadn't gotten worse but i hadn't necessarily gotten better and i was they started me on the experimental drugs that morning oh. and so i called my other sister renee who is an elder who works in our clinic. Actually, she's a spiritual care advisor and she's a traditional healer. And I talked to her and she said, um, put the medicines. She goes, you don't have to light them. Mm -hmm. Just hold them. She goes, they have medicinal qualities, whether you're lit or not. Cause they wouldn't let me light anything, right? Right. right. COVID unit. And, um, if you remember back then, they had turned down the ventilation systems inside hospitals and stuff like that to keep it from oh, moving through. Yeah. So I couldn't light the same again. Um, Plus the oxygen. Yeah. And so then I was like holding the medicine on my lap and I, she said, just pray to that spirit of COVID. She goes, it's a spirit just like anything else. Mm. Pray to that spirit of COVID. Thank it for visiting you. Mm. Thank it for giving you bringing you the lesson that you need to learn from this, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. 
and ask it to leave. Yeah. And she goes and just pray for pray for strength and resilience from your ancestors because they're there with you in that room. And so I did that, held the medicines, I prayed, and I just I I didn't know what to say in the prayer. I just said a simple prayer, and I just said, "Creator, please help me. I'm I'm not done here. Yeah, I'm not done." And the third day, I started to get better. I started to slowly get better. Yeah. I know. I remember, too, when you were talking about medicines, it was like, in all seriousness, the first time I made flat cedar tea because people were saying, Mm -hmm. you know, check it out, you know. And it wasn't, didn't give me permission to go out in public, but it gave me protection. Yeah. 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 So that was life-defining and changing, for sure. And um, by the fifth day, I think I was out of the woods. The medicine was starting to take place mm-hmm. to, or take a good turn. I asked for that stuff that I, the doctor was like, oh, you know, I was like, hey, you know, I want whatever that guy in orange is getting that, you know, that. <laughs> don't just give me the remdesivir. Give me that really good stuff. And they're like, well, I don't know if I can get that. But, but at least, you know, I spent thanksgiving there you know i lost some time with my family but i was able to get out on i think december 1st yeah Yeah. well hey dr stately thank you for that um we're gonna take a quick break again and uh we're gonna have a a special guest on that i'd like you to talk to a little bit and then we'll get back to the story and also talk a a little bit about vaccines and uh what vaccines are happening now too Mm -hmm. um you're listening to Native Ritz Radio Presents Rising from COVID-19, Another Story of Resilience. And this is a series of three shows, and this is show number one. We'll be right back. Radio presents Rising from COVID-19, Another Story of Resilience. I'm here with Dr. Stately Haley. And, uh, Dr. Stately, we have a, uh, a guest with us now, and uh, I'd like you to take over the show, as you probably have wanted to since the very beginning, but go ahead, doc- Dr. Stately. <laughs> oh, yeah. He figured out my dastardly plan. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh for joining us this evening. We have a special guest, a very special guest. Um, and I'm going to let her introduce herself first. And, um, you know, but I'm, I will say her name and then she's going to introduce herself. So we have a very special guest, Deanna Standing Cloud, with us this evening to talk about um, her experiences um, <clears throat> um, living through and surviving and, and emerging from COVID. So, um, Deanna, why don't you uh, tell um, our listeners, who you are and um, where you come from, and a little bit about, you know, yeah, what your life is like. Awesome. Thank you all so much for inviting me on the show. This is maybe my second or third time being um, a guest on the show. Um, so, Buju relatives in Dinaway Maganaduk. 
My name is Deanna Standing Cloud. I'm a citizen of the Red Lake Nation. I come from the place of abundant walleye. So that's how I introduce myself. Um, I was born and raised in South Minneapolis. Um, I currently live in Moundsview, Minnesota. Um, and I have done work, uh, a lot of collaborative work in the community since probably 2000. I mean, I've, I grew up in the community, but I was really, I took a lot of um, initiative with my, my, my children's education. So I was kind of involved with Indian Ed. And just from there, I just was very collaborative with my community um, and really advancing the standard of living for our community. So that has always been my drive. It's kind of evolved since I, you know, since I started my vision and things and learning and um, learning a lot of the spiritual practices and ceremonial practices and cultural practices. So um, I think that happens as you, as you age and I'm trying to, um, you know, age in a graceful way, <laughs> just <laughs> by also being, um, aware of like my limitations and then also um thinking about mentoring younger folks as well awesome yeah awesome yeah i remember uh years ago you were on native roots radio and uh it was one of the you had one of the first really emotional uh introductions i've ever heard on my show and uh you spoke in your language and you introduced everybody including your family and uh, i thank you for that I, i'll never forget that Thank you, Robert. <laughs> yeah. I get it's, emotional. Like, yeah. Well, it's impressive that you know your language. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. awesome. I love that. I love to hear you speak it, and I love hearing the language. So thank you for that, Miigwech. Um, And you have this amazing career now as being like, you know, you're this, I don't know, you're this super mom. You have this amazing, these amazing kids, you know, um, we're nothing like my kids. So. <laughs> Here, uh, di di ditto. No, mine are, mine are amazing. Never mind. Uh, but also, a uh, Native American MC powwow. Yeah, I, I saw yeah. you in action this last weekend, and that's uh, that's huge. Yeah, like the powwow for hope, right? <clears throat> the for American Indian Cancer uh, Foundation. What is it that they're? 15th powwow? I think it was the 12th, but they 12th. took three or four years off because of COVID. I yeah. think this was the first comeback Yeah, after quite a few yeah. years. Yeah. So that is an experience, right? It's a post-COVID experience that you can talk a little bit about. But um, And then also um, you're a stand-up comedian. You're mm -hmm. a writer. I remember you wrote a play <laughs> that I was mildly featured in for a very short period of time. You're a thespian too, Dr. Stately? Hold it now. Don't be calling, <laughs> don't be calling people oh, names on it. This is a family show. Um, <laughs> but yes, I, I'm a part time thespian. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, on the weekends. <laughs> only between the hours of 8 and 10. Hey, here's my card. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> scan it um, <laughs> um so but you have all these things and you for a period of time you were the community um liaison for united health group right and she was 
at our NACS big event last year as a um, our MC for our event that we did for um, our big um, 20th anniversary. We had a dinner at Wani, right. and um, I know you're I don't salty. Think I, I'm still salty. I wasn't invited to that, but it, thank you for the Tupperware, Deanna. I yeah. just want to throw that out <laughs> yeah. there. You probably got lost in the mail in your invitation. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Yeah, that was a that was a big impact of COVID too, like poor mail systems. So, (laughs) but um, uh, but so you did that, and you you have this amazing like. I think so. This the the conversation tonight is about like our experiences around COVID, and going through that experience. Some of it wasn't always pleasant. Some of it was really scary and challenging at times. And then we emerge and we're on this other side of this, you know, I mean, I like to tell people we're not out of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The virus is still around. It's mutating all of the time. Right. You know, I have a couple of relatives now who are, um, who, who have COVID and one who's very ill. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we emerge from that and we, you know, and, you know, I, I just have to say like, you know, like you, it feels to me like, like I watch you move through the community. I, I've known you since you were a little girl because I was friends with your mother and your father and a lot of other of the people. Sort of, your mother and I went to high school together. We kind of all sort of grew up together and became, you know, somewhat of adults together. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all out to debate. And um, exactly. For debate. Um, and. Um, what really is really impresses me about you is that you just you, you you're like you know you're such you are the embodiment of resilience you're like constantly remaking yourself bouncing back sort of like and it's just i think for me that's an amazing it's just an amazing quality about you and um i don't know if you know that about yourself but it's really something i've seen and witnessed over the last several years like how just amazingly resilient you are so a couple things i have is like questions i have is one is like tell us a little bit about your experience with covid and surviving that and and tell us a little bit about where that resilience comes from (laughs) oh my gosh okay i'm not gonna you know what i I proclaimed at the powell for hope because i was uh there was a moment there where they had the luminary bag. So you have the option to purchase a luminary bag. So Powell for Hope is um, a fundraiser with American Indian Cancer Foundation. And you can purchase a luminary bag and you could, you know, like put in memory of someone who has passed away from mm-hmm. uh, from cancer. And, you know, I knew about the, the, the feature at the powwow before. Um, and I wasn't sure how it was going to play out, but this weekend, um, I was re you know, like I was reading the, the names and I just started to process kind of a lot of the losses that I've had over the past year and a half, um, with my community, because I feel like I've been keeping busy a lot in order just to survive. I think just to keep, Mm. keep, keep really busy because, um, our minds are so powerful and our emotions are very powerful and you could very well get you know sucked sucked in sucked under with all the um the negativity or if 
I were to um, kind of get wrapped up in a lot of the negative things that my family has gone through, which which does throw me off. I've actually missed a couple of grant application deadlines in the past six months because I just I'm not blaming them. Eh? It's my own. <laughs> Oh. But, you know, it's just like, it's heavy and it's hard yeah. to yeah. carry. So I was, it was a very beautiful time to be processing those emotions with my community because I, I don't like cry. I mean, I do cry once in a while and that, that's, it's so unlike me because I'm such a crybaby any other time. But um, after COVID, it's just like, I'm not as much of a crier, if that makes sense. But Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you kind of wrapping up um, kind of what you, how you see me and how you picture me, um, Dr. Stately, because it, you are, you know, you're a hero. A lot of the movers and shakers in Indian country, and especially here in my community, are my heroes. And I see the cool things that everyone are, is doing. Um, and I really appreciate those words. So I'm not, and it's okay to be emotional. It's fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 2023. If I feel like I'm going to shed a few tears, that is fine because it's, we're so over trying to hide our emotions and that's, I'm down with that movement. So, nice. but yeah, um, you know what I had, I actually gave birth to my third baby, like weeks before the quarantine happened wow. um, mm-hmm. and I didn't think I was going to actually even have you know because i was 40 almost 41 i was 41 and she was born um so just weeks after that we were quarantined um and at the time i was experiencing a very abusive like mentally abusive relationship and so we were in a very small um it was in a studio apartment but it was very small um so it was really traumatic to kind of distance myself from that that situation especially with my kids experiencing a lot of the stuff along with me and there was an interaction with my mother and this person and I have a lot of regrets about that um so there was a lot of huge like um like transformative events that took place for me personally in during COVID and I know that like holds true for the state, you know, for everyone, um, because this was such a huge, like never before seen in modern times this way. Um, but, you know, and then, so I had, I give it, I gave birth to my third baby and I was kind of going through postpartum depression at the time of the quarantine. Um, so I was trying to make sense of that. A lot of what help, helped me to kind of survive and hold on to was my, just the, my tobacco. Like that's very simple, like my tobacco and, and remembering what it feels like to be in ceremony mm-hmm. and remembering what, it, how safe you feel in ceremony and knowing that this doesn't feel good to me. This doesn't feel good to my kids. Um, and this, this is not right. So um, November 2021, um, I at like four in the morning, I some uh, my son was assaulted by this person um, in front of our family, um, and he was I mean he's 15 now he's just a little 13 year old guy and um, so 
we just left at four in the morning. And the first person I, I just drove north, my daughter helped me through this thing. Um, I just drove north because that's where my mom was. Um, I didn't mm -hmm. tell her about it. Um, as soon as I, I got to like an Airbnb and I called her and I told her where I was and she, um, she was in white earth and which was a little far from where I was. Um, but she just dropped everything and she came to see me and she was so excited because she knew the situation I was in and she knew that she, um, I wanted, you know, it was best for me to get out of that. Um, so she came, came to, to see me at the Airbnb and we spent weeks together cooking and hanging out mm. and um, having fun. I was processing a lot of trauma at the time too, though. Um, so it was amazing. It was, it was awesome. And it was a lot of the stuff that she had asked to do before that time. And I just kind of blew her off. Um, mm. And then she, she actually got, I got COVID in January of 2022, which kind of, it just threw me for, it was really, you know, it was, it was hard. Um, and anybody who's experienced and had mm -hmm. COVID kind of knows how heavy it hits your body. Um, and then about a week after that, my mom got COVID and she was asking me, um, like different remedies. Cause I, I had my remedies all, you know, spread out. I was just trying to combat it with a lot of our traditional medicines and things like that. And then went to Walgreens and stocked up. Well, I didn't actually go to Walgreens, Instacart or whoever. <laughs> <laughs> I love Instacart. Um, and then she got COVID and she wasn't vaccinated. Um, she was very, she wasn't vocal about her, um, about the, like her position on vaccinations to me, but she didn't get vaccinated and she made it, she was intentional about not getting vaccinated. She didn't believe that it was something that she should do. She didn't trust it. Um, and she, she had COVID before, but for some reason, this, that, you know, that bout of COVID really hit her um, hard and she was admitted into the hospital. Um, and then it just, I mean, she just got worse. And then during COVID, it was such a, hard thing because in the you know like the policies and procedures and protocols in the hospital i was the only one allowed to go visit mm. her which well at, at one point she was in a hospital where it was like one person at a time per day um which was okay but then we moved her to the cities where it was just one person and that was it mm. um that I think that was one of the hardest things for me too, because she was, on, you know, she was on life support and on oxygen, um, mm. and she, I was there by her, by myself with with her, um, and it was just hard to process, because when you know we're natives and we think of family around mm. us when that's happening, yeah, mm. yeah, and I, you know, I would get up and just try to take a break and there was nobody to hug there was like no one there and it was just it was one of the most hard difficult you know moments of my life and it was weeks you know it was weeks um i had to do that um and my you know my i kind of took the lead from my grandmother 
but I was like the next, like the next of kin. And I was like in charge of all her decisions and things like that. <sighs> so my grandma wanted me to like extend her, you know, the life support and things like that. But, mm. um, if she was just declining and, um, we just had to make the decision to take her off the life support. And, um, so she, she passed away in, um, a day after my daughter turned two in, uh, Maple, Maplewood, Minnesota, right up the road. Um, and that, I mean, that, when I thought about that happening as a young kid, like if I pictured something like that happening, I felt like I would just die and just go not, not <laughs> make it. But in that moment, I knew I had to do it for my mom. I knew I had to do it for my grandma. I knew I had to do it for my kids. So I just took took control of everything. And she was buried in the traditional Medewan um, way. So I had there's like very specific things that I had to do for her. Mm -hmm. um, so I got like a I actually got a, a doc, like a document, Google Doc with everything that I needed to do. And I had so much support because my mom had so many friends, like, you know, Dr. Mm -hmm. Stately, you know how, like, she's my mom. So it's like, you imagine me, like, so she had tons of friends. Yeah. Um, I had lots of support, um, but that was just, I just like engulfed myself in, in the traditional part of it and like the meaning and the, um, because the, um, the person who conducts the ceremony explains to us um, not everyone will do it, but he'll do it in the language and mm -hmm. then he'll do it in English. And not everybody does that, but he took the time to explain it to us. And it was beautiful. Like the um, explanation of where she goes and what happens and her travel was extremely beautiful. So I was actually proud of myself and I could feel that my mom was super proud of me too. Um, so I think my my kids my family the culture the language all those things is the glue that kind of held me together because if i didn't have those things i probably would have probably lost it so <sighs> did i say that all in one breath i'll take a little break right there <laughs> yeah yeah no but that was a beautiful story and thank you, you know for yeah thank yeah. you for sharing that it's a beautiful story um, and so moving, I mean, I knew your mother well, I knew her for most of my life, <clears throat> you know, we were teenagers, I think when we met, so, um, yeah, and when she passed, I was very sad, I was very saddened, um, cause there wasn't, I don't have a memory of being with Carmen where I wasn't laughing, <laughs> so, like with like with my whole being, right? Like she just was like, it's easy to see where you, she, it's easy for me to see where she, you get your beautiful spirit and your energy from and also your sense of humor. And um, and she also was deeply, deeply um, committed to her family, right? Mm -hmm. and like she understood that. And, you, and I know you also recently lost your grandma and I know I have vague memories of her because like I'm old so <laughs> I think you know I probably maybe the, one of the last times I saw her probably was when I was much younger but um, I just remember um, 
you know, she was a very deeply spiritual and powerful um, Native woman too, Indigenous woman with strong values. And those are probably the things that, you know, where your mom got it and where you got it from, and that's for sure. So I just thank you for sharing that that story with us. Um, yeah, like, and I had forgotten that you'd given birth to your baby, or like, yeah. little baby girl, um, mm-hmm. right at the, right at that moment in time, and um, I think right before COVID happened, and you were pregnant, and I saw you at the Indian Center, like we were like kind of over, like this is before the gatherings cafe closed. Oh my God, that was like, yeah. I remember I had to go without like you know. Bison, um, bison, <laughs> bison, sweet potato, like you know, hash for like a whole year and a half. I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna die <laughs> without my hash. <laughs> but I remember like seeing you in, in in the Indian Center, and you were very pregnant, and and I, and I think I was like, are you gonna be able to give birth in a hospital? And yeah, it's just like I mean, I, you and a number of other people, I think, felt that same anxiety. Women that I knew that were pregnant during COVID, like. Am I going to be? Am I going to be able to give birth? And will I be okay? That must have been anxious, anxiety-producing as well. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was uh, again. I'm using the word compelling um, story, and uh, I don't know. We could probably maybe wrap it up here with this young warrior here, the, the young <laughs> comedian warrior. Uh, do you have any I last have more, yeah. more to say though, Robert, what the heck I've been waiting for you. Get you that quick. I'll just have to come back. Yeah. You have to come back. Um, but yes, your daughter's beautiful. You're beautiful. Um, mama here is baby here. Does she still say yeah. that? Oh, oh. yeah. We were in ceremony together, and they turned, and it got dark, and I think it was her first time being in a dark ceremony, right? And she was, I think she was a little scared, and, you know, and then um, Deanna was like, it's okay, Mama's here, and then she said, baby here. Yeah, Mama's here, baby here. Like like they were doing attendance in ceremony. (laughs) How cute. Taking role. Present. (laughs) Present, yeah. Yeah, it was a beautiful, I mean, that was a really beautiful ceremony, too. I was like, um, I have a lot of great memories of that time, so. Yes, Um, we got good memories together. We do have a lot of really great memories together. I'm privileged. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for joining us and sharing us, sharing with us your experience. I really appreciate that. And um, again, you are one of the stronger women I've ever met in my life. So tremendously proud of you and proud to know you and proud to call you daughter. Oh, almost daughter. Almost hey. daughter. We have a story. Yeah. We do <laughs> have a story. story. That'll <laughs> be the next uh, show. Uh, I think we're going to keep that one under wraps. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. That's your 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 moonlighting as a whatever you're doing on the weekends. Yeah, <laughs> like, it could be like you know, like you know, you know, right? As you're like going through all my things after I pass, you'll find like, the story and a little crumpled up note. Some high heels. Like, <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> all right. Can I just say, just like as a closing, um, you know, like Native people, we had so many. I mean, this is only this is something that we've always you know in our history we've survived 
many things were, you know, worse than COVID. Um, and we have that in our DNA. And I feel like COVID is just kind of our way of like, like you said, reinventing ourselves as a people. Um, so it was our opportunity to kind of show um, who we really are and just kind of be more comfortable in our identity. So that resilience is really who we are at a molecular level. So COVID was very scary, but we, as Native people, we handled it like a boss. Yes, we did. Thank you so much for reminding us of that. Yeah, it's Pini Gee. Thank you for coming on and um, speaking your truth. And uh, I've always thought you were cool, and now I know you're even cooler. And I appreciate, hey. appreciate that and appreciate street you. Street <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. From Bobby P. That's yeah. my street name, by the way. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. what? What? Okay, we'll see you soon, Pini Gee. Best to your family. Good man. Wow. Um, amazing, Dr. Stately. Uh, we only have a, like a few minutes left here. And uh, I kind of want to get into just a little bit of update on vaccines and what what uh, we can do. And uh, I know COVID's back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know Haley's been looking up some statistics and things like that. Yeah, um, it is. I mean, it's the, it's like that relative that <laughs> Why are you looking at me like that? It's like that relative that you sort of kind of like, yeah, good to see you. Yeah. Come back in a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> and he keeps visiting. Yeah. Well, you were saying earlier, too, that, uh, you know, and I, I guess I don't want to get the blame thrower out, but, you know, it's still with us and it's coming in different variances and, and it's, and it's different times. It's it's more prevalent. Like uh, summers, we're outdoors. Now we're back inside. Mm-hmm. As the season's getting colder, we're going to start to go stay back indoors more frequently, and that's going to be a significant challenge because we'll have the confluence of that, but we'll also have the confluence of the flu season, which is going to be you know I can't. You know, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over the last like three or four weeks who thought like, "Oh, I just have allergies," or mm. oh, "I just have a cold." And, you know, my um, a relative of mine was like, "Well, I just have strep. I'm going to go get tested for strep because my throat is really sore. Uh-huh. And I think I'm okay with that." And then like, "Well, you don't have strep, but you have COVID," <laughs> kind of a thing. Um, yeah. And. So part of it is this is an opportunity for us to remind people like like you know this is a serious situation and like so there's a bunch of things I think to keep at the front of our minds here mm-hmm. as we sort of kind of go into this next um, wave of things. One is is that this particular variant I think they call it an Eris. It's XB. I don't know every time I think about it I think of um, you know that um, that group the song <laughs> XBX. S expect or something like that. Oh, I thought but, it was eight six yeah. seven five three zero yeah. nine nine. No. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, the the thought here is is like that is a very virulent strain. I guess it's you know it's very easy to pass. Um, and lots of discussion, robust discussion, I think, in lots of spaces about whether or not. Um, it is helpful to wear masks or not. I hear people inside healthcare, outside healthcare, in the stores, out on the streets, in the parking lots about you know whether or not it's effective to wear masks. I think 
there's a number of things that are important. One is, it's like, you know, think about the people around you. Do you have people that live with you who are vulnerable to becoming very sick? Do they have, you know, immune compromised situations? Are they elderly? Do they have situations in which they did get sick? They would um, get very ill. Even if they've had it before, mm. like we have this perception as human beings to think like, oh, okay, I got it before and it wasn't all that bad. I just, you know, and then, um, you know, and that's the nature of a variant though, as, as the virus gets stronger and gets, and, and, and mutates, it can get more stronger and more powerful and, and it can affect you in different ways. So be thoughtful, be a good relative, wear masks indoors if you're around people who are more vulnerable think of other people who um you know um <clears throat> need your protection think about your role in your life like my 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 lesson in this is i'm a dad and mm -hmm. i have kids i'm still raising so i have to take a little bit more responsibility here and so i think show up and be a good relative and think of yourself and your well-being and the, and the impact that that has on other people and, and their well-being and um and there's lots of different ways you can do that. Get a vaccine. Yeah. Updated vaccines are available as of this week. Really? Yes. And, um, you know, and free COVID tests now. You yeah. can still get those um, and um, as long as they're available. So use the tools that we have to be able to sort of protect the love, the people we love. You know, and even protect some people that you don't love necessarily <laughs> because they do have value. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. I, I, I said that was my fingers crossed. Though, oh, but, okay. Uh, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. Stately, uh, we're wrapping it up here. We've got about three more minutes left. And I, I just want to uh, thank you and thank our guest uh, tonight with this uh, these stories of remembrance of people that are in our life, but also of what we've gone through. And it really makes sense. You did name the show... Uh, Rising from COVID-19, another story of resilience. Um, um, I won't admit that in your court, but uh, you, did, uh, you did name the story, and that's true, uh, that what you spoke tonight and what um, our young, uh, young warriors she spoke mm -hmm. about, too. Yeah. I loved her message. Yeah. That we are resilient people, and we, we emerge stronger from this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Haley, do you have any last uh, last comments here before we uh, take off? It's pretty intense tonight, today. Yeah, I think it's a great reminder to talk about this pandemic and how it's affected all of us and, and to m remember the people that we've lost close mm -hmm. to us and, and near and dear to us. And I hope everyone takes care of themselves and is a good relative and takes care of their family and does so by getting vaxxed or getting boosted and washing your hands and doing all the things that we do to take care of ourselves. Yeah, and uh, I appreciate it too. And I, I think, uh, you know, we're going to take off here and we're, this is going to be a series of uh, a couple more events that uh, Dr. Stately will be co-hosting with us. And we just wanted to Remind everybody what happened, what it's like, and what it's like now. And uh, I did steal that from uh, my, yeah. uh, my big book. Uh, yeah. but, uh, from people, Bob. <laughs> Dr. Bob. <laughs> hey, again, thank you, Dr. Stately, Deanna. Thank you so much, Haley. Thank you to the Minnesota Department of Health for supporting this. Yeah, good one. 
And we'll see you soon. And uh, you'll hear Dr. Stately every Monday on Native Ritz Radio. And uh, we're awake and uh, for more updates. And we'll be on soon again with another, what we like to call a sacred symposium. And that's a tongue twister. It's hard to say. Try it once. Three times. Sacred symposium. Sacred symposium. Sacred symposium. Here we go. Hey, 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 hey,